0: me now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, where we'll read from verse 21 through verse 31. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice." And those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken altogether. And those who can forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come to study Your Word now, the passage that is before us, like all of these opening chapters of Isaiah, this is heavy, and it's sobering. And we need to be careful as we read it and study it and apply it. And so, we pray for the help of Your Spirit now, that He would come and speak to us, that He would be our guide and our tutor, and that we would be fed richly from even this portion of Your Word. Amen. Well, Isaiah's initial wake-up call is now reaching its conclusion. In this opening chapter, Isaiah's purpose has been, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it has been to punch hard into his initial hearers and readers with the hope that he might startle them, the 8th century B.C. Judeans, that he might startle them into seeing the true depth of their sin, and that they might then turn to God in faith and repentance. Judah had been called by God to be a witness to the world of the joy and satisfaction that is found only in union with God. In Genesis 3, immediately on the heels of the fall, God had promised that He would send a Redeemer who would crush evil under His feet. In the covenant with Abraham, God had Elaborated on that promise, revealing that the Redeemer would not just save a collection of individuals, but that he would come to lead a, a kingdom, a collective whole of the redeemed, who would not only outnumber the sand on the seashore, but whose glory would outstrip that of the stars in the heavens. It was the promise reiterated and reinforced when God brought His people out in the Exodus and settled them in the promised land. There, they were to shine with the reflected glory of their God. There, they were to proclaim to a world trapped in sin the judgment of God against that sin, but also the mercy of God for sinners that is found in those who are united to him in humble trust. In Israel were called to be a model community, standing in the midst of this world, declaring to the world, demonstrating to the world the profound goodness of the gospel, the goodness of, of a life lived in union and communion and fellowship with God. It was the mandate that continued down even after the kingdoms were divided. After Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, divided geographically and politically, but still united by this common mandate to reflect the glory of God in salvation. But by the 8th century BC, both kingdoms had degenerated. And they had walked away from that calling. They had exchanged the glory of their God for the foolishness of the idols that surrounded them. By the time that Isaiah is writing, the northern kingdom of Israel is on the very verge of falling. The Assyrians are already making their initial forays into that kingdom, their initial attacks on that kingdom that that will come to its conclusion when they come and take that kingdom away into its exile. The southern kingdom of Judah is ignorant of the warnings of that northern kingdom, and they are still blindly walking in the way of sin, apparently oblivious as we saw two weeks ago, to just how dire their spiritual condition had become. They're still going through the motions of worship. As Isaiah has told us, they're still sacrificing, they're still praying, they're still observing the Sabbath, they're still celebrating the feasts, apparently convincing themselves all the time that they were still a religious people who enjoyed fellowship with God. But in that devastating passage we saw two weeks ago, you remember God through Isaiah came to them and said to them that all of their outward devotion was rendered void and meaningless by their failure to obey the Word of God. Even worse than that, God had accused them of offending and provoking Him by by feigning worship to Him while all the time neglecting His law. What God, through Isaiah, confronts the 8th century B.C. Judeans about here, it's the very same thing that Jesus confronted the Pharisees about when He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they went through the motions. They said the right things. They went to the right places. They looked respectable and religious, but on the inside, there was nothing but death, a hollowness because of their failure to obey the law of God. It's what Jesus had told His disciples famously in John 14 verse 15. He couldn't have been any Clearer when he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Judas' failure to keep the commandments of God betrayed the posture of their hearts. There was no devotion to God, there was no love for God, simply a contractual understanding. If we do our part, then God will do his, and we'll all get along. But what Isaiah was communicating to them, what he is communicating to us is that in covenant with God, there is both blessing and obligation, and the two always go hand in hand. There can be no viewing the law of God as a harsh drudgery simply to be endured, right? That fails to see the goodness of the lawgiver in the intent of God to conform His people to His own image and likeness. But on the other hand, there can be no viewing the love of God as something that is untethered and inconsequential. Right? That fails to understand the fundamental dynamic of the duty of the creature to the Creator, the servant to the King. So, Isaiah has been forceful and direct in his confrontation of Judah's sin. But before he moves on to the next step in which he will describe in detail the judgment of God that stands against them, Isaiah here, as it were, gives one last call to them that they might see the reality of their spiritual condition, that they might see just how far they have wandered from God, and that they might repent of their sin and lay hold of Him by faith. And so, in this final section of chapter 1, Isaiah focuses in here. In this final punch, in this final push, Isaiah focuses in here specifically on how their spiritual degeneration had become manifest in their social breakdown. Now, Isaiah's hinted at this already. In verse 16, he says to them, in his call to repentance, he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, why would that be an evidence of repentance? It's because those are the very things that they were not doing. He has already made this clear to them that that God is aware of their corruption and their failure to uphold the standards of the covenant. Isaiah has already made clear to them that they have developed a profound self-centeredness that aimed at their self-advancement, even if it came at the cost of others' well-being, or maybe better, precisely coming because they are depriving the most vulnerable in their society. But now Isaiah focuses in on this. He drills down deeper And he lays bare for his readers just the extent to which this corruption has poisoned their society. It's encapsulated in what we find in verse 23. He says, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Did you understand in just one verse that is a description of total social breakdown? That's a that's a dystopian picture of a society in which no one can be trusted. And those who hold positions of power are not using them for the welfare of those under their care, but they are only using their positions to advance themselves. It's a society that runs on the principle of quid pro quo. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours it runs on the principle that everything is relative and power goes to the to the one with the deepest pockets and the best connections its cruelty lies of course in the fact that it then leaves those who have no pockets and no connections as just the dregs of society to be trampled on used and abused there's no justice there's no righteousness. There's no upholding of law. There's no order. I and mean, this is bad enough in, in any society. Any society that descends into, into this descends into a paranoia and a self-consumption. All right? if there is corruption like this amongst those who are entrusted with power in any society, it will lead to, to terror in that society. But you understand, Isaiah here is not giving a commentary on governmental probity. Isaiah's point is that this is so bad, so particularly bad in Judah, because they were supposed to be the polar opposite of this. They were supposed to be the the very place on the face of the earth where if if there was any place to be found where righteousness and justice and truth was upheld, it was to be in Judah. If there was to be any country on the face of the earth where the poor were cared for, where equity was its defining mark, it was to be Judah. That's why this is so bad, because they were supposed to be the people who who reflected the nature of the God to whom they had been joined in their salvation. They were to be defined by His character and bear His likeness. The equivalent now is the church, right? We as the New Testament people of God, we are to be marked by a love for justice and equity. We are to be a people who are compassionate towards the disadvantaged, a people who are marked by a distinct desire to bear one another's burdens. Right? We see it throughout our New Testaments. But I think it's encapsulated in what Paul says in Colossians 3, when he gives the clear command to the church, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is who we are called to be. As the people of God, we are to be a people who dwell in the peace of Christ, a people who are marked by compassion and kindness and humility with a long-suffering with each other. This is We are to be a peaceful people in which everybody cares for one another and seeks simply to outdo one another in care and compassion. That's who Judah was called to be, the same calling. But when we exchange that for selfish ambition and callousness, And regardless of how religious we might look, we are in reality just an ugly deception. Untethered from the religion, we profess this loyal to the king we profess to serve, and instead we are shown to just be focused on building our own kingdoms in which everything revolves around me and what I want. That's what Isaiah says in verse 22, when he illustrates their condition. He says, "Your silver has become dro- become uh, your silver be- has become dross, your best wine mixed with water." Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says, "Dross may shine like silver, and the wine that is mixed with water may retain the color of wine." but neither is worth anything. For all their outward respectability and religiosity, it was was worthless. It was like watered down wine. It was like, like fool's gold. Now, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, if you were to stop off in Jerusalem for a couple of days, it's entirely possible that you wouldn't have seen any of this it's entirely possible that you would have just observed that external pretense of righteousness and order. I think we can illustrate it by thinking of the photographs we see of of Pyongyang in North Korea. You look at the photographs, and it's clean, and it's orderly, it's got beautiful, broad avenues. It's got a clean and seemingly efficient public transport system. You look at those photographs, and you see a beautiful city. But there's always something missing from those photographs, and it's, it's people. You see those broad avenues, and there's just one man on a bike coming down a six-lane highway. You see the public transport system, and there's a few people coming on and off, but it's not the crush of the New York City subway. It looks good, but it's hollow. And what Isaiah is saying is that 8th century B.C. Jerusalem had become a religious Pyongyang. There was a, a pretense of righteousness of facade. They were ostensibly religious. They appeared to have ordered in their society, but it's hollow. But Isaiah goes on, he puts it vividly. He says, behind the trappings of the prince, there is in reality a gangster who just uses his power to manipulate and control. Behind the regalia of the courts, you just find a hand that's held out for a bribe. And notice just how far this went. This wasn't just a few bad apples spoiling the barrel right, to probe his illustration a bit more. When you water down the wine, all of it is affected. You cannot pour out a glass of unwatered down wine. But even more, he doesn't say that their silver has become mixed with dross, with impurities. He says that their silver has become dross. That's all it is, right? It's a picture of deep and total corruption, and this is heartbreaking that the people of God should ever become so ungodly. is It's heartbreaking, but in a sense we can understand when those who are not Christians act this way. Like we we aren't shocked when sinners sin, or at least we shouldn't be shocked when. Sin or sin, we might look at just a civil society that degenerates in this, and it might disappoint us or frustrate us, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise or shock us. But, but when those who are united to God as His covenant people turn away from Him to indulge their greed and their self-centeredness like this, it is ugly. It's twisted. It's, it's not fitting. Well, we might. Well, it's not right for someone to say that. That they don't go to church because, while they love Jesus, it's it's his people they can't stand. Well, it's not right for someone to say that. I think we can understand it. Right when the religious turn their backs on God and even use the worship of God for their own advancement, it is repulsive. That's what Isaiah is describing here. This is ugly, it's repulsive, it's twisted, it's rotten. But wonderfully, God promises that He will not let the wicked win the day. God promises that He stands even though none others do, He stands as a King who has not forgotten righteousness. He stands as a judge who has not forgotten justice. And so, this evil, this corruption, will not be allowed to win, and God promises that He will bring His vengeance to bear upon those who have brought such evil. And the language that's used here, it drives home to us the extent of God's hatred towards sin. Look at verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Or verse 31, and the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The commentator Alec Motier says about these verses, any facile statement that God always hates the sin but loves the sinner needs to be countered by Isaiah's insistence that those who transgress are my foes and my enemies. They have made themselves the adversaries of the helpless. Therefore, the sovereign Lord holds them as His enemies. There's no pulling of the punches here. There's no softening of the point. Isaiah is saying, God through Isaiah is saying, this is personal. And God is personally, and not just propositionally offended by sin. And so, He will personally bring the sinner to justice. And then you understand this is good news. You want a God who hates evil. You want a God who, who is resolved to bring the wicked to account. You don't want a God who shrugs His shoulders and says, well, it's not ideal, but I don't really want to interfere. Right? You want injustice to be overturned. You want oppressors to face the cost of their oppression. You want the wicked to face a personal reckoning for all their wrongdoing. And so, this is good that God should come here and say, I will not stand for this. I will bring them to account, and I will vindicate my people, and I will vindicate my name, and those religious hypocrites, they personally will face my avenging wrath. This is good news. This is order. This is justice. This is the promise that no matter how corrupt human society may get, yet there is a God in the heavens who is full of truth and righteousness, and He will not let evil win the day. This is good, except we think a little and we realize that we are not on the outside of this. We're not watching from the courtroom gallery. It doesn't take a lot of introspection to realize that if you are to place yourself in this scene, then you're standing in the dock. Now, you might not have done it to the extent that these Judeans have done it. They seem to have been exceptional in their sin. You might not have done it even to the extent that you have seen others do it in the church. You might not be blatant in your manipulation of power and control. Your indifference, your callousness towards the poor might not be immediately obvious. It might hide under a a veer of compassion or at the very least neutrality. But it's there. What is the great command in all the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, our Lord says, is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Who of us have done that? I don't always love God with every fiber of my being. With every aspect of my faculties at every moment of the day. I certainly don't always love my neighbor as I love myself. There is still in me a hard root of pride that still wants the world to revolve around me, to give me what I want, the way I want it, when I want it. I want God to act like I want Him to act. I want Him to serve me. I want other people to do the things that I want them to do. So, while we want justice, while we want a God who rules His creation with righteousness, at the same time, we have to say with the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But then we remember the next verse of that psalm. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And with that comes the relief that in God there is found both justice and mercy. Right, and that's what we see here, isn't it? Even in the midst of this wrath, there is a promise of mercy to be found. Even here, in the midst of a promise of justice and vengeance against those who have trampled the law of God under their feet and attempted to subvert His authority, in the midst of this clear burning vengeance of God, this absolute intolerance of wickedness, even here there is enfolded into it an offer of grace and mercy. We find it in verse 26. God says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. That is a verse that I think bursts onto this scene like like an oasis in the midst of a desert. It comes into this like a, like a pressure release valve in the midst of the intensity of God's accusation against this people. But the question then comes, but who will these judges and counselors be, and how can there be any to dwell in this city of righteousness if, if no one has been left unstained by this? then how can there be any reformation and not just total destruction and devastation? The answer is found in verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. It is the promise of the gospel that there is hope for the guilty who are penitent, There is hope for sinners who hear this warning and who heed this warning. There is an offer of grace here for you. The wrath of God stands against you in your sin. But God, through Isaiah, says if you give up that sin, if you turn away from your self centeredness, if you turn to God and you cast yourself upon his mercies, then you will find forgiveness. But verse 27 is good news. It shines into this darkness brightly and vividly. It dawns in the night of this dark passage. But if we think a little more, we realize that this is enigmatic, And if we pause and read it again, it seems self-contradictory. How on earth can we be redeemed by justice if it is the justice of God that stands against us in our sin? How can the penitent be redeemed by righteousness if it is the righteousness of God that condemns us in our sin? When we look at this and we think, I thought the point of this passage is to drive home to us the severity of the justice and righteousness of God. So, what can it mean? Well, it's left enigmatic here. But in chapter 53, Isaiah will lift the curtain a little, and he'll at least give us a clue into how this is resolved when he tells us of the suffering servant. And he says that this great enigma of the gospel will be solved by his own bearing the weight of our sin. But even that is murky. And it will remain murky until we see all of this gloriously resolved in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Or Romans 5, 8 and 9, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And the most astounding act of grace and mercy to the holy undeserving God in Christ went to the cross to bear the penalty of His own law against our sin, so that John 3.16, whoever believes in Him will not perish as the wicked are destined to do, Isaiah tells us, but will instead be granted everlasting life. It is the cross that is the key that unlocks all of this. It is at the cross that justice and mercy meet. It is at the cross that the sinner is redeemed by justice and the penitent by righteousness. We want to shy away from this. We want to write this off as the stuff of the hell, fire, and brimstone preachers of a bygone era. My hometown of Dundee in Scotland, there was a minister called John McPherson, but his nickname was Hellfire Jock. And that sounds okay for the 19th century. We can understand there being hellfire jocks in the midst of the stern and austere 19th century, but, but we are 21st century sophisticates. We don't want warnings of judgment. We want intellectual arguments. We don't want to be warned so that we flee from our sin to Christ. We want to be wooed into His kingdom. But listen, the message of Christianity is that there is severe judgment in God. The message of Christianity is that God hates the sinner as well as the sin and will execute His justice upon him. The message of Christianity is that God is so full of justice and truth and righteousness that He cannot pass over sin. But by the necessity of His eternal character, He must execute justice upon those who break His law. The message of Christianity is that no veneer can fool Him, You might be able to fool those around you. You might be able to posture and pretend so that they think that you are a fine, upstanding member of the community, religious and devout while while harboring covetousness and injustice and pride. You might be able to fool those around you. You might even be able to fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. He sees past that veneer. He knows the inner man. He knows your sin. And he knows that in that sin you stand as his enemy. You might be a strong man on this earth, but you will, as he says in verse 31, be like tinder before his righteous wrath. But listen the message of Christianity is also that in his wrath the Lord remembers mercy. And the gospel is extended to you this morning as it was extended to these Judeans. And the call goes to you, repent of your sin. Turn from your self-centered pride. Humble yourselves before God. Confess your need to Him. And trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be saved. You will be redeemed from your slavery to sin, and you will be set as a free man, as a free woman, in the city of righteousness, to enjoy union and communion with your God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, this is heavy, heavy ground that we are walking through. And it's hard and it's difficult, and we want to look away, but we pray that You would help us to grasp what You are saying, that we would see the depths of our sin, that we would see the heights of Your grace, and that we might then see between them the glories of Your love for us in Christ. Oh, as someone has said, grace only makes sense in light of the sin to which it is the remedy. And so, we pray that You would give us a deep and profound understanding of our sin, that we might then have a high and joyful understanding of Your grace. Father, bless us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.